Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available, Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft, Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming, Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore, and Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. All right, this episode is part two of my discussion with Dr. Ian Dunigan from Sleep for Performance. If you haven't checked out part one, it is linked up in the show notes. On this episode, Ian and I discuss 90-minute sleep cycles. We discuss human biases and instant gratification. We discuss caffeine and its effects on human health and performance. I asked Ian about caffeine's effects on adenosine and sleep pressure. I asked Ian for his thoughts on meal timing. We discuss sleep disorders. And I asked Ian for his thoughts about meal composition and its effects on sleep. Guys, this was a fantastic conversation with Ian, and I hope you really enjoy part two. Ian, part two. Thank you so much for making time. Let's get into it, my man. So we've got 90-minute cycles, sleep disorders, and caffeine and performance, and the floor is no, yours. No, we won't get into it, because we want to stop here now and ask you a question. <laughs> I'm sitting down here on the opposite side of the globe, and all I'm hearing is stuff about Brexit. I, don't, I tried to figure out the other day what's happening with Brexit. Oh, you're, you're asking what's the wrong... Happening, what, you're asking what's the happening wrong. with the Northern Irish border? Robbie, give me the two-minute rundown. I haven't a fucking clue. I, that, listen, I, I'm, I'm in my own world here, man. I don't own a TV. Like, I don't even have a working phone. I'm like the most fucking isolated man who lives in a city probably in the world. So you're like, you're like a true paleo man. 
as you said before we got online, I look like a smackhead or what was the other one? A smackhead or a, what was the other one we said? Or a, cre- or a creepy fucker. Or a creepy fucker, <laughs> yeah. Just for the listeners, it's because like it's, uh, I'm wearing a hoodie like, and I just stormed in my room so didn't, I've got no lights on either. And Well, he said it wasn't even the lights. He said, no, you just look like a smackhead or a creepy fucker. So thanks for that. It, so you, don't, you have no idea what's happening on Brexit? I haven't a clue. All I know is England left the EU, but I have no idea how that's impacting Ireland. I know, I heard some things about it. Well, seemingly they haven't even left now. They can't get out. They're like, they're like someone who was in a relationship and they're fighting over who gets the couch or the dog and nobody can make a decision. That's gas. That's gas. So I've, I've no idea. I'm trying to get the cliff notes here and I can't. I, I, haven't, I haven't got time to be looking on the internet and listening to crap. Same, same as yourself. Anyway. Yeah, listen, we're, we're too busy fucking changing the world in our own ways. <sighs> I'm wrecked here. I'm wrecked here doing nothing. Right, so you got 90 minute cycles we're going to talk about in this episode. We're going to talk about sleep disorders and we're going to talk about caffeine. Yeah, so but, let's start. Let's start with the 90 minute cycles. cycles. And just, just on that, because you called me out on it, you're like, well, that's a bit of bollocks. And like, I, like <laughs> it's funny, you know, because I'm back reading Matthew Walker's book and he's ranting on about these 90 minute cycles. And anything I've read so far, you know, of course, I've only, I haven't read everything on, with literature of sleep. They always talk about these, you know, roughly 90 minute cycles. So I'm really intrigued to hear what the story is. Right. So, Amy Bender is a brilliant scientist in North America. She's based in Canada. She's American. I would, I would encourage your listeners, um, all seven of them, to jump onto Instagram <laughs> and look up eight sleep. listeners. Eight. Oh, yeah, that's right. I downloaded an episode as well. Sleep for Sport, the number four, just like I'm sleep for performance. Go to Sleep for Sport and look at a post that Amy put up um, a few months ago, which actually talks about these 90-minute cycles. I think back around the 16th of September, she put this up last year. And it's a really good thing because I think we spoke briefly about this, Robbie, the last time. The thing is, when it comes to sleep science, it is a bio- it's a biology predominantly, right? And with biology, as you know, and many people know, there is no one-size-fits-all. There is no standardized approach. We're not dealing with machinery. We're dealing with complex systems, which have a lot of kind of moving parts within them. So, Roughly, yes, 90-minute cycles. If you probably collate a heap of data together, you might get 90-minute cycles. But here's the problem. First of all, there's a difference between nighttime sleep and daytime sleep. So in, in this Instagram post that Amy has, and this is the best example I've seen, and this is why I'll refer to this, if you're trying to work out 90-minute cycles, that the time to get into these cycles is vastly different if you're sleeping during the day than you're sleeping during the night. So on the nighttime sleep graph that she's put up here, or what we call a hypnogram, which shows the different stages of sleep from wake to REM, stage one, stage two, stage three. I think we spoke about this before. One is light sleep and three is deep sleep. REM is not actually deep sleep. It's dreaming sleep. So in the first one there, it shows like that the person's taken approximately nearly, you know, two, um, one hour to get into that first cycle, you know? And it's about two hours before they hit their first REM period. Now, in the other one, daytime sleep, the person hits their first REM period within 20 to 30 minutes. Mm. So now, you've got huge variation in those. And if you look at how Amy describes this as well, and again, I'm going to keep referring to this because she has the best simplistic breakdown of this. Um, this theory of, of getting complete sleep cycles is not actually based on science, despite some consultants using this with the professional teams they are working with. Here is an example. Along the bottom is the time of day and the vertical axis is the sleep stage, as we said. If you look at the two graphs side by side, you will see that these actual REM periods that are highlighted in black do not line up with the REM periods during the day. 
So this is one problem. And this, is in, this can be in just in one person alone. Other things that affect these stages of sleep, and I'm paraphrasing all this here as well, are things like exercise, the time of day you exercise, the amount of exercise, the recovery that's required, caffeine consumption, nutrition, sleep deprivation. And I'll just stop on sleep deprivation for a moment. If you have someone who has been sleep deprived for a long time, and particularly those people who are not getting, um, you know, if we look, for example, at people who are waking up very early in the morning, maybe three, four, or five o'clock in the morning to go exercise, they're eating into what we call the REM cycles, which we may have discussed previously. Yeah. And if we inhibit or reduce those REM cycles, the body's going to try and make them up because the body will prioritize REM sleep over non-REM because it wants the brain operational before the body. So when you go back asleep, you may, or when in your next sleep period, you may have what's called REM rebound. So your body will go straight into REM sleep really, really quickly. We see this in sleep disorder patients as well. If they've been deprived of REM sleep over a long period of time, they may have rebound for months on end. So they might not necessarily have 90-minute cycles. So there's too many factors here at play to say they're 90-minute cycles. In addition, if you nap during the day, this is going to affect it. And the other thing that's going to affect it as well is age. At different stages, we spoke about chronotype. Uh, owls and larks but also as we age we might have more sleep problems or we might have other you know health issues that uh, coincide with, with aging as well or, or as we get older we obviously can't function as well so all these things are going to happen as well so the, the kind of aim here is not to make it complicated you know you should be in for seven to nine hours of sleep if you don't if you think you have a sleep problem then obviously go and get uh, tested or get it checked out and we'll talk about sleep disorders in a moment but the thing is like it, it doesn't line up exactly. So, you know, we could run a study, Robbie, and we've seen this in the laboratory as well. We've ran studies and we'll sit back and we'll look at four people sit, sitting in each bed and it'd be all wired up with the gold standard polysonography. And we'll look up at monitor one and we'll say, okay, subject one, just hit stage one sleep after an hour. Subject two, they went into REM in 20 minutes. Subject three, they're gone from one, stage one, stage two, down at stage three within a half an hour because it depends on all those other factors that's happened that, that we said about. So if we said to people, just calculate those 90-minute cycles, we're going to have an issue because they may not be getting the, the required amount of sleep stages. In addition, we know from big other studies that actually seven to nine hours is optimal in that area. So if you're cutting that short, you're sleep-depriving yourself every day. So, you know... Yeah, 90-minute cycles. But also, what's not being factored into 90-minute cycles is awakenings throughout the night. What if you wake up to go to the bathroom? This is quite normal. A lot of people complain about wake episodes, but a number of wake episodes across the night are would be considered to be normal. So if someone's awake for 30 minutes spread across the night, that would be a normal value because we may even wake up slightly, we don't even know it. What about sleep latency, the time it takes to fall asleep? So we know from clinical work that someone should be falling asleep within 10 to 20 minutes. And we spoke about that the last time, about exposure to light and so on. So how has that been factored into the 90-minute cycles? See, no one's talking about this. So my advice to people is look past the 90-minute cycles. Try and work out the amount of sleep that you need by having a lie-in on a weekend, seeing how long you sleep for, or even on holidays as well, uh, without the imposition of an alarm clock. You know, and then figure out how much you actually need for daily functional performance. I need about seven to eight hours, eight hours plus after a big training session. But my wife could quite happily easily sleep nine hours every night. You know, so if she gets less than eight, she feels pretty crap. 
So there's individual variation there as well, and there's individual variation in the cycles. So unless you are scientifically analyzing your sleep cycles in a laboratory with a scientist, which, which are subject to change within person as well, don't rely on this. Additionally, some people may be listening to this going, hey, but I've got one of those cool uh, iPhone apps that measure your sleep cycles. It doesn't. Yeah. Don't use it. Yeah. What's it measuring? What's it doing? It's not. A free app or a 99 cents app compared to a, you know, a, a $1,000 overnight assessment is just not going to cut the mustard. So yeah, don't even waste your time. But I encourage people to go and have a look at um, Sleep for Sport, Amy Bender on this and um, on sleepforperformance.com.au in the next few months, we're going to be releasing a blog discussing these 19-minute cycles because not only myself, not only Amy, but lots of scientists in the sleep and performance area, to be honest with you, are completely fucking pissed off of hearing this stuff so mm -hmm. you know you're better off maximizing sleep and addressing sleep disorders as opposed to 90 minute cycles yeah that's really interesting so, so like would a sort of you know again takeaways from that context is king again and that like okay like people talk about these 90 minute cycles but what you're kind of getting at is the composition of these 90 or not even 90 minute cycles but the composition of an an an, an an entire duration of sleep so say like seven to nine hours is going to be so individual to the person given on what their body requires from that sleep given on some of the factors they had preceding that sleep you know so you were saying like if if, if they went into that sleep and they were deficient in REM the body may prefer preferentially want to get more REM and then so it isn't going to be just perfect 90 minute cycle that people talk about so like the composition of, of everyone's sleep is going to be so individual as well as like as you said duration you're saying like your wife like she likes to have more than eight or even up to nine hours and you seem to operate fine at seven and a half to eight so not only duration but composition is going to be usually individual it's not this like it beautifully goes from REM to not or from non-REM to REM in these lovely 90 minute cycles would that be a main takeaway yeah. from that exactly robbie yeah and 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 also as well like i just want to reiterate the point you may go and get this assessed yourself if you wish to do so. I don't see there's much point in doing it, but if you do, but then you might have that tonight. Then tomorrow you go and lift weights, run 10Ks, and the whole cycles are completely different tomorrow night. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, and that's actually what I was going to ask next. Yeah, because just in even in Walker's book there, like, and I know he writes that to the layperson, but he's kind of saying that non-REM seems to be you know, more so for like memory consolidation of like facts and figures and textbooks. Whereas the dream state sleep seems to be more for like motor skill acquisition. And also from like, he's like, if people were in more of a sort of traumatic healing, like post-traumatic stress disorder, he's like, they yeah. see, their, their brains see, seem to want more REM sleep rather than non-REM. So even like in his book, he's pointing out like that, you know, different contexts going into sleep seem to demand the different types of sleep between like the non-REM and REM. So again, what composition makes up an individual sleep. So yeah, I think that's, that is fascinating. And again, like, like I suppose, you know yourself, when people are trying to put messages out to the masses, they can, you know, some people put it out in such a general way and then it becomes too generalized and it's kind of like, well, now that's not even, it's, it's gone, it's gone from, you know, to somewhat true to half true to like, so watered down now it's like absolute horseshit you know so it's it can be just it's like what's the game chinese fucking whispers where it's just like it's like well that's actually not what we originally said so robbie i'll tell you what here, here's an actual great example and i encountered this actually this morning in a business meeting that's not related to to this sort of work that i'm doing in, in the sleep research but it was more of a business type kind were of you in thing, your man. suit were you in your suit and tie oh man you should have seen me i looked good man i look good i was suited and booted <laughs> after shave on i shaved I actually looked professional. I stood upright for a first time in about six weeks. So um, <laughs> it was pretty good. Anyway, 
I, we, ordered, we had, had this breakfast meal. I ordered some food. And I said to the lady, look, can I have scrambled eggs and bacon? Uh, no toast. Because it, it's like a meal that says, like, you know, scrambled eggs and toast, blah, blah, blah. I said, no toast. And the guy with me goes, yeah, I won't have any toast as well. And she goes, oh, don't tell me you're on this paleo or keto or something diet. I went, uh, no. I said, I'm just sick of eating carbs, like, over Christmas. My wife was baking heaps, and it was awesome. But I feel bloated, and I just decided about 10 days ago that I would go on this kind of low-carb, high-fat type uh, approach just to get back into a regular state. And, of course, she's like, well, I don't agree with that. And I said, oh, so you don't agree with that? Okay, right. Why don't you agree with that? Uh, well, I need carbs and blah, blah. I said, so straight away you don't agree with it, but you've personalized it yourself. I said, so let's, let's break down the facts. And the guy that was with me was laughing, and we were sort of sitting to this girl, and we said, so why don't you like the keto or the low carb? Oh, because everything has to, be in, has to be covered in fat and covered in butter. Who said? Well, that's what they say. Who's there? There is no there. Yeah. So straight away, she thought low carb, high fat meant you had to put, you had to eat all the fat in the meat. You had to pour butter over everything. And she actually said, I hear people drink butter on that. I was like, well, not me. So we then broke it down and we said to her, right, so... How old are you? She was like 27. When you're 27, it's probably easier for you to process carbs. You're also working in a coffee shop part-time, you know, moving around all day. I'm over 40. The guy with me was probably tipping 50. It's harder as we get older. And then she started asking us questions about this ketogenic diet. And this guy is not doing a keto diet, but he's just trying to eliminate bread and pasta and, and potatoes for the month of January. But the same thing, Robbie, to the sleep point. I just thought to myself after that meeting today and that interaction, Something goes out into the community. Yeah. The truth goes out. Like a Dom Agostino or some of these guys talk about keto. Then what happens is it gets completely bastardized to Chinese whispers. And so it's so far from the truth. Yeah. I was in the chemist dentist afternoon. I was getting a prescription filled. And I got some of those ketos, ketone strips to piss on. Because myself and another scientist are actually thinking about doing a, a sleep slash ketogenic type research study. So I thought, I'll get some of these things and I'll piss on these sticks this afternoon and play around with them. Then the chemist starts arguing with me about, I don't know how people eat all that fat. I'm like, what are you talking about? Can you do the low-carb, high-fat with just lean meat? I said, you can do it as a vegetarian if you want. I said, oh, I heard you have to, you have to buy fat. I was like, like, I was just shaking my head going, this is the problem. Yeah. You know, people just, they don't take the data, they don't take the information, they take the peripheral story, internalize it, then create their own narrative around it and then come up with their own dream sequence around it to either justify it or don't justify it. Yeah. But what do you, you think is a problem? Robert Sapolsky talks about that in his book, Behave. In his actually, in, in his one of his initial chapters, I'm not sure if it's the introduction, I think it's in chapter one. It could be the introduction, but it's in one of the first two uh, chapters of the book, whether it's the introduction, chapter one, but where he talks about as humans, we like to put things in buckets and categories. Because it's yeah. just it just makes us easy. It's easier for us to understand things. And then he's like, then we only ever see things through that filter and that frame of reference. Because and he was kind of you know he was he was you know making sure he got that point across in terms of trying to understand human behavior. Because he's like, is human behavior down to biology and it, or is it down to childhood trauma or is it down to nutrition or is it down to your sleep or is it down to all genetics or is it epigenetics? And he's like, it's all of it. And he's like, so he's like he's like if you took like a uh, a fucking like uh, a psychologist there like it's, it's just all to do with childhood trauma it's childhood trauma and he's like then if you took someone who's like more from the physiological aspect they'll be like no it's it's all to do with like 
neurotransmitters and brain and you know if you took a nutritionist like it's all to do with diet and you know if you took someone with circadian rhythm, it's all to do with sleep and he's like they're only looking at everything through their own little frame of reference he's like whereas you've got to take all that shit in and as you said that's what people do is is like they only look at things or filter things through their own frame of reference and then they put their own narrative on it the other thing too is ian is that people just don't want to and a lot of people don't know how to research you know what i mean they, they, yeah. one, one research is hard like you know like like people sit down, I actually, I have a good friend, Pat Davidson, he tells me about this. He's like studying or deep thinking is actually kind of, it's dreadful to your brain because it's tough. You have to put mental energy into it and your brain's kind of like, I kind of want instant gratification now, 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 now. And you're kind of like, I don't want to have to like delay this gratification and like study and come to my own conclusions and things. It's too hard to, keep, to think deeply. And like just people just want like, you know, instant fucking, you know, hits on their phone and they just want superficial information so they don't they don't want to do the deep work or the deep thinking or, or to come to their own conclusions and things so you're gonna get that as well but uh it's funny you know, if, if i was in there and she's like you don't want bread are you are you kidding i'd be like i just would have played like i would have like made her feel real guilty be like no I, i've i'm a really really like bad celiac if i eat that i'll die <laughs> i just give her like the puppy dog look no if i, if I eat bread like I'll, I'll die that's what i've been told yeah uh, I just, but I, it's it's interesting how people say that they don't agree with that. It's like um, here here's another story I'll tell you before we move on to the next part, which actually links in to what we'll talk about next is caffeine. We had some friends who live on the east coast. Um, well, we still have them as friends. It's not that we had them; we still have them. We have some friends who live on the east coast of Australia. <laughs> we fucked them over. <laughs> yeah, we robbed them and bet them off, and now they're not friends anymore. We took our firstborn child and brought sold them into the slave market. Um. So, basically, they were bringing their kid to a coffee shop, um, <laughs> you know, in the morning when they get a cup of coffee, whatever it was, and it, the, the kid was like four or five, and, you know, they'll get the kid a, a baby chino, and I, I don't know if you have baby chinos in Ireland, because I'm, I'm sort of like half not there anymore, so, you, you know what a baby chino is? I, I personally don't, but I'm sure the listeners, I, I like told you, I'm a fuck, like, Outside of my own world, man, I don't know what's going on because I don't, I don't, I don't drink coffee or go to like Starbucks or any of those places, so I don't know. But I, I'm assuming right. there probably is. But now, what I will say is there is a shit ton of coffee shops around Ireland now, like they're everywhere. Yeah, so like we don't have a lot of big chains down here, like Starbucks or Costa. It's a lot of a kind of Italian Greek heritage here in Australia, which is great because we have a, we have a lot of good coffee and not just big buckets of milky shit, which is yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So. Anyway, they're bringing the kid in, and a baby chino is basically kids want to be you not know, drink coffee like their parents forever. So a baby chino is just frothy milk with a marshmallow in it, and maybe a few chocolate sprinkles, right? So it's basically just hot milk with a marshmallow. Yeah. But this dummy in the coffee shop down the road was will turn around and said to my friend one day, "Well, I don't. I know you keep ordering baby chinos for your kid, but personally, I don't agree with that." And the guy was like, "What do you mean?" He goes, well, I don't agree with giving coffee to kids. He went, what do you mean? He says, baby Chino's just hot milk and marshmallow. And the guy behind the counter was like, what? Really? So he'd be making actual coffees, an actual cappuccino that was a baby Chino with a shot of coffee and giving it to the kid. So there must have been about 50 kids getting around that suburb, jacked up on caffeine in the morning at 7 o'clock. Oh, my God. So talk about people not even getting that basic understanding of, of what's in this guy was a barista, by the way. So that was his job to make coffee, you know, and he should have known it. 
you know, and I think even even me, who's not a barista or hasn't a clue about anything either, even I knew when a baby, you know, was just milk. But this dummy was putting caffeine in and giving it to the kids. So that's why Johnny's off his head in the morning. <sighs> yeah, so he's, he doesn't have Tourette's. He's actually just full of caffeine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's fucking, that's, that's a, oh my God. Madness, madness. Humans, we're all fucking fucked up. Some, some more so than others. And speaking no, not of... not me, Robbie. Yeah, not, not you. No, you're, 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 I'm, you're, I'm, 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 I'm perfect just the way I am. You know that song, Don't Go Changing? That was written about me. <laughs> but anyway, talk, <laughs> talk about being fucked up. Let's get into sleep disorders. Well, I think in that segue, let's, do, let's talk about caffeine. Oh, yeah, let's talk about caffeine. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm, I'm very interested because it's, a, it's an area that I am quite ignorant on because a lot of people, I don't know if you get this too, like, you, you know, when you have friends or relatives and they kind of they half understand that you're into like this health and wellness kind of thing. And they almost, they just start like automatically start defending what they do in their lives without you have even instigated the conversation they'll just go oh so i've been doing this it's like and then in your head you're kind of like you don't need to defend what like i don't need to know it's fine it's okay relax but they always go and i do i drink coffee is that okay and i'm like like just they just automatically like always want to you know like they're kind of like they're like telling me their sins you know and like automatically without me ever i said to you without even initiating a conversation but with coffee or caffeine i'm a bit ignorant in terms of like what is the deal with that? You know, is it healthy? Isn't healthy? I hear there's fast metabolizers, slow metabolizers. Again, I suppose there's going to be context around this, but you you give us the whole lowdown there. So yeah, right. So you, you're always going to get. We'll talk about caffeine in general. You're always going to get different different sort of um, things in the paper. Caffeine is bad. Caffeine is good. Uh, caffeine causes heart attacks. Caffeine staves you know staves off heart attacks. All these different types of things you're going to hear. Here's the thing. Caffeine is probably the world's oldest and legal drug. Drug, yeah, yeah. And the most and definitely by far the most used drug. So if you look at um, you know, sort of the use of caffeine across the world, it's being used absolutely everywhere by everybody. You know, we use it daily. Every morning, probably people have one going to work. I know I certainly do. People have a mid-morning. You know, businesses instigated a kind of a coffee break to allow people to consume this this drug, legal drug, in order for them to be more productive, right? Mm-hmm. And so in the simplest type of format, you know, caffeine is what I would call an accelerator. It gets you uh, jazzed up, hyped up, psyched up, ready for a while in. No. You missed that joke. See, you weren't around in the nineties, Robbie. No, I wasn't. I, you know, I, when 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 that when that when that gap happened there, I was like, "Fuck!" That was a joke, and I was meant to laugh. Or else he's after dropping off the call, and I was like, "I didn't know which no. one. I didn't. I didn't know which no. one would have been better." <laughs> no, I see. <laughs> you see, that was a that was a that was a that was a nineties reference there for some of your older listeners. Anyway, they might they might remember that. So anyway, it does actually, you know, kind of get you hyped up and ready to go. And it is something that can be used as a performance enhancer or what we commonly call in the, in the athletic area, an ergogenic aid. So um, just bear with me here for one moment, Rob, because my notes have completely frozen no, that no I was going to talk about on this. Um, and so it's widely used and it was uh, sort of what I would call decriminalized in the athletic field. So you can use as much as you like as an athlete, um, you know, for performance enhancing but it takes a heap of caffeine basically to get you into an area where it's going to probably make a big difference to your performance and if you get to that point of having that amount of caffeine you're probably going to be lying on the ground shaking like a shitting dog as mm. peter k would say um so so yeah now 
there is a heap of different studies um, that are out there. We do know that it negatively affects sleep and physical recovery as well. We know when it's consumed overnight for shift work activities or endurance activities, it can basically disrupt or disturb the daytime sleep. So if you have a lot of caffeine at night as a shift worker, or you are taking it to get through like an ultra marathon or an Ironman or an adventure race, your recovery sleep is going to be, um, is going to be impacted as well, yeah. particularly in the morning or during the day, because when you consume coffee with your sort of natural rising cortisol, it's going to affect your sleep because you're going to have the cortisol kind of uh, being in your system. And also you're going to have the caffeine as well. Now it's important also as well, when we talk about caffeine to understand the pharma, what's called the pharmacokinetics of caffeine. So when we consume coffee, and this will get to your point about individual variances, yeah. on average for people, and I am going to talk about averages here because you will have to find out whether you're a slow metabolizer or a fast metabolizer of caffeine. Yeah. On average, most people in a group, in a study, will peak around 60 minutes. So you consume coffee, let's say at um, 8 o'clock in the morning. By 9 o'clock, that coffee now is starting to hit your system. The half-life of that coffee, coffee could be anywhere from four to six hours. And then it might take approximately, it could take up to 12 hours for it to get out of your system completely. 12 hours. So, yeah. So let's say we generally talk about when we're talking about athletes and timing of caffeine, we'll say it's going to factor in 60 minutes for it to peak and four hours for it to get out, right? So basically that's five hours, you know, a kind of a clearance rate of minimum five hours before sleep onset. So the other end of that spectrum is if you come home from work in the evening, mm. you sit down and you have your dinner and you go, oh, I'd love a cup of coffee. It's six o'clock in the evening. You have a cup of coffee. That's an early dinner, by the way. You have a cup of coffee. It's going to be at least 10 o'clock until you think, until you're going to be able to get to sleep. There's absolutely no way you're going to be able to, you know, get to sleep before that. It's very, very difficult. Uh, and is that having an effect then on adenosine and sleep pressure? Is that, is that sort of the mechanism of caffeine? Yes. So the, the, it, it will, um, so adenosine or andenosine, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have that effect as well. Um, and so this actually was, um, getting back to a study we did in Super Rugby, we actually looked at the effect of caffeine on sleep and the time it, 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 it did take to... Sorry, the time it took people to fall asleep as well, mm, mm. Um, you know, based upon upon these things. So, um, yeah, sorry, I got I got sidetracked there because I was I was on a, I was on a train of thought there, and you you you, you derailed me there. Sorry, sorry, you you, you were talking about the half life of caffeine. And you were saying after dinner at six, and I I put it in with the is that to do with adenosine. And, and, yes, there's uh, a couple. There's a yeah. So then, yeah, okay, right. Uh, so there is a there is a couple of things that are at play here. Um, it's not just the effect on adenosine or the inhibiting no, uh, inhibition of that. It's also um, basically um, uh, it's going to act as a kind of a, an agitator to the brain, where it's going to cause neurons to fire, mm. um, and so. This can affect in the, the pituitary gland, which then sort of you know releases hormones to the adrenaline glands to produce adrenaline, and then basically you start getting hyped up, um, and then you get all these things like increased heart rate, airway opens up, blood vessels dilate, blood pressure rises, blood flows to the stomach. You know, you get nervous, you get twitchy, 
you do you do with some people get faster reaction times and this is where the literature now Robbie starts diverging so when you start looking at the literature on caffeine you're going to get a lot of um controversial type of um outcomes or a lot of difference in them hmm. so um if you look at say and it depends on the type of study as well and how people are are going to uh, react to it but really this is how uh, caffeine really kind of works in a few different ways so there's no consensus on how it's actually how this mechanism this ergogenic aid acts but a few theories are that it improves muscle performance based upon skeletal and cardiac muscle uh, being enhanced uh, thereby improving power and strength improve metabolism specifically around oxidization utilization as fat so you're sparing your glycogen yeah. um, so these things are all kind of theories on how this actually works the studies in themselves are quite variable. Some are questionnaire-based. Some are actually taking blood samples, saliva assays, um, you know, whatever they may be. And so we look at some endurance athletes like Ironman, 84% of them believe, believe that caffeine use improves their concentration. Um, and runners then, when they took, um, you know, a caffeine shot, um, like a matte um, herbal-type energy shot, or even a Red Bull energy shot, there was no difference um, between the groups. There was no improvement in the runners. Mm. Um, yeah. In highly trained cross, I'll just finish this one. Oh, I'm sorry, ahead, highly, highly, highly trained cross country skiing athletes, caffeine was shown to enhance performance on an eight kilometer skiing test. So when they took caffeine, it helped them. In taekwondo athletes, we see that they had improved reaction time and an increase in combat specific intensity during a simulated competition. Right? Um, and we also see then as well that sprint times in rugby union players in a test um you know had improvement in sprint times as well yeah. but also then across the board in military operations when we start looking outside of those we see there is variable um sort of performance enhancement there whether it be physical tests or marksmanship tests mm. or reaction time tests now what's really interesting i find about caffeine is that and from sleep if you're looking at the context of sleep deprivation is that over time, it, and it, we may have spoken about this before, big sleep deprivation um, takes longer to affect physical performance. So you may go a week in some cases without having physical performance being you know, affected, whereas yeah. cognitive performance will be affected or mental performance that are 17 hours. Now, what's really interesting is that when you look at reaction time testing or you look in the military and marksmanship testing or the grouping of the shots, when they've been awake for 24 hours, it gets worse. And also when there's excessive caffeine, it gets worse because the reaction time might be good, but their accuracy is poor. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I had to get all those out there, Robbie, while I was on a roll. No, 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 no. <laughs> and no and it's funny because uh, I was like, what I was going to ask was about military too. And sort of what, what I've seen is that caffeine, just from the little bit I've, I've researched on it, it seems that if there is an ergogenic benefit, it seems to be more skewed towards like strength power sports rather than endurance ones. That's why when you said the cross country skiers had a benefit, I was a bit surprised about because yeah, usually it is more to do with like caffeine seems to seems to help with more sports that have like very high outputs, like very very high um, speed and power outputs. So again, like speed power sports, and then I've also heard too like you know in terms of the military, it's used as a as a, a strategic ergogenic aid in terms of things like cognitive performance, like with the, the pilots and marksmanships as well. That's like, right, yeah. But uh, obviously, like with anything, with any sort of 
with any sort of performance enhancing stimulant or, or drug as we've as we've nearly alluded caffeine to it, there's obviously going to be this sweet spot of of you know it being beneficial to being detrimental like it's surely it's a, well not surely i'm, I'm assuming it's on a, on a on a u a u-shaped sort of curve or a bell curve and that you know you can if it makes you too over aroused it'll actually be detrimental to performance kind of whenever you were touching on there with the military it's like it, they were so deprived sleep deprived that you know nearly the the caffeine almost you know it's, it's what's attenuated or accentuated which one makes it worse whichever one makes that worse um but like is and again that's going to come down to like in, individual response to caffeine too like in terms of like uh you know knowing your sort of the sweet spot of taking in too much or too little yeah i think you're right and i think like um you know like it's going to depend on the person and you're saying about find that sweet spot. So people with as low as one milligram per kilogram of body weight, you know, so the recommendation is three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight okay. to get an ergogenic effect. However, some people might get it after one milligram. Some people, some people might need up to five. Yeah. So it's one thing talking about in the context of an ergogenic effect to get through something, an ergogenic aid. The next thing we need to look at, and which I'm which the area I'm more interested in is how does that affect your recovery? Because we see a lot of people as well, let's say in shift work, who finish a 12-hour shift, they work 6 in the morning till 6 in the evening. Then they go to the gym, they walk in the gym, uh, they shake up one of these big pre-workout drinks, they skull this thing, do their workout and walk out. It takes an hour to peak. The caffeine that's in, those pre-workouts are laced with caffeine, people. Mm. Like that's what's in them. Shitloads of caffeine. That's what they do is, but how that peaks when they're walking out the door. Now, is that helping them get through the workout? No. Is it affecting their sleep? Yes. So now some of those guys with one of those, um, some of those scoops of uh, pre-workout have been equated to 10 espresso shots. Fucking hell. So how much, how, yeah. much, how much caffeine in terms of milligrams per kilo is that? Oh, it's, it's, quite, it's quite variable. So you look at like, you know, it's going to depend across. Um, I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head because yeah, it's going to yeah. depend upon, you know, what, how you're consuming the caffeine. Okay. Um, but you're not like really across the day, you shouldn't be having more than kind of like, let's say four to six shots of, ca- of caffeine on average for an average person. It again, depends on tolerance. I know that some people can have one shot and they're done for the day. When you um, say a shot in like what, what's that dosage wise now? I'm very ignorant to all these, these. Well, again, that's, I, I don't know because it depends on the, on the caffeine and, okay. and, and, the roast and how it's all coming out when we're just talking about coffee specific but other people might be taking caffeine in the form of pre-workout they might be taking it in the form of chocolate they might be taking it in the form of caffeine gum mm-hmm. uh, they might be taking it through red bull or energy drinks so there's all different routes of entry and i think a lot of people don't equate the fact that the energy drinks and the pre-workout are actually uh, have a high concentration of caffeine in them so they don't think about that or even chocolate and if you're very sensitive to that you know, you're going to have a lot of effects with um, a lot of negative effects on your sleep. So look, it's not that the fact that these things are bad it's the fact that you need to time them correctly. Yes. So if you're sitting in your office and it's four o'clock in the evening, you're going to the gym at five or half five, probably have your pre-workout drink at work. So when you do get to the gym, it's hitting you and you're getting a kind of a master blaster, you know, approach as you walk in. Mm. So there's no point in having it as you're working up because it's not going to hit for a while after. Simil- sim- uh, similarly as well, if you're an athlete playing a team-based sport, having caffeine at half time may not be the best thing because that may not kick in till after the game as well. Yeah, yeah. And um I was gonna ask something else there. There was I was gonna ask you something what was I gonna say there just a second ago. But just uh one thing I wanted to ask there too, back on that military one there you were saying um just from my own head, 
were were you saying that after they had a period of of deprivation and they had some caffeine that actually made them worse did you say that is that what you said so some of these guys in different in different studies um depend on each individual study but these people are generally sleep deprived yeah. then they were then they were given caffeine as a strategy to try to improve alertness and physical performance oh yeah, oh yeah and they were tested across marksmanship like sandbagging tasks running like a 5k circuit push-ups pull-ups all that sort of thing the thing that went first was basically you know accuracy reaction yeah. time with the caffeine was pretty good so you know they can put a gun out of a holster or bring a rifle to their shoulder but the accuracy quick. of it was yeah, yeah but the accuracy of it was all over the place yeah so actually the grouping of the shots is what they would say was actually was was height was distributed you know wider so the accuracy of those shots Do you know um, it's it's funny sorry to interrupt you it's funny you say that because in Sapolsky's book behave he talks about when you get into fight or flight and your amygdala is like the predominant part of the brain going it's like the amygdala is brilliant for speed like boom but it's like its accuracy is appalling so like he he's uh yeah. he, he basically like when cops like he, he's basically trying to use the story of like when cops see someone reaching for something in their pocket the amygdala goes fuck it's a gun and like the cops like get the gun ready and he's like oh no it's just a fucking wallet Do you know so like the accuracy of the information was was wrong but the speed like was there in terms of the amygdala processing so no doubt in it like and the caffeine obviously jacks up sympathetic nervous system and fight or flight so that that again would make sense that the reaction times were high but the accuracy could be down yeah and you see this sometimes i see this in the gym like you know going in your train jiu-jitsu in the evening sometimes and you can tell the guys are all pumped up and they're ready to go and they're on stuff and they're just like jumping around like epileptic type wise and they're just it's like man just just chill control yeah. your breathing because you know if you can't think if you can't breathe you can't think and if you can't think you can't fight and if you can't fight well then someone's going to choke you so you can't breathe so it's this vicious circle you're getting yourself into just relax like and, and calm it down because you know to your point exactly people are reacting they're reacting very quick but they're all over the place you know and i think this feeds right into what you were talking about there as well you see people fighting that have no idea they're like just fucking windmilling their arms around the sky or guys as well who train mma and they're they're new to it they get they get clocked or they get swept or something happens they get kicked next minute they're you know they're fucking going in there like a lunatic so and if you've got caffeine in your system as well and, and cortisol's firing and caffeine's firing might not be the best thing. It might actually tip you over the edge. I, I recommend for a lot of athletes to experiment with caffeine in training before you start using it for performance in an yeah. actual competition. Because for some athletes, it may be the worst thing you're doing. Yeah, because yeah, in uh, what that reminds you of too, and sort of I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier when I was talking about that bell-shaped curve. Like uh, I remember reading in the NSCA textbook, they were talking about you know the like sort of that anxiety that anxiety bell curve again that if you're too under aroused you won't perform well and if you're too over aroused you won't perform well either because you're just fucking all over the place you're too anxious up your coordination and motor control is gone to shy because you're so over aroused whereas if you're just in that sort of mid zone that sort of goldilocks that's kind of where you want to be you want to be just just aroused enough not too much not too little for optimal performance and no doubt then caffeine will be a big factor to that and i remember what i was going to say to you too is that no doubt again and, and like this kind of nearly goes without saying the fact that humans are dynamic organisms i'm sure to a degree like the dosages that we're going to need on an intra-individual level is probably going to vary somewhat to a certain degree like maybe one day one 1. 1.5 milligrams enough whereas another day we might need three milligrams for whatever reason for whatever the context is going into that certain situation yeah for sure yeah and the other thing as well is like um if you look at in the context again back in shift workers not in athletes um 
a lot of shift workers when they're on night shift will use caffeine a lot more than when they will on day shift yes. or if they're trying to overcome the negative effects of working a sequence of nights and they want to be alert during the day to try and get back into a cycle um, you see caffeine being used you also see a high amount of shift workers abusing caffeine you know so it's probably one of the most widely abused drugs as well so that's the other thing as well so again it's getting back to our conversation about you know from the start of this even in part one it's not that one thing is good or one thing is bad it's about the timing of it it's about the dosage and it's about managing it yeah. you know it's you know you can't just you can't, it can't be you know it's like what i'll call robbie we 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 grow up we are born and bred in the land of alcoholics you know mm-hmm. um and that's that we can say we can be racist because we're irish and say that um that's allowed but you know we we know people <coughs> like my dad who can scold 20 pints and be actually just jolly and then we know people <coughs> like myself yeah. who drink two pints and are hammered like so <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? you're, you're, you're dead well. yeah you're dead yeah, again yeah you're dead right and it's the, the dose is what makes the difference between a poison and medicine I'm not saying that alcohol is medicine well i mean they're, they're, too, <laughs> they're, they're actually there actually is studies out there showing that you know it's you know yeah. that the alcohol is actually can be helpful in in um certain circumstances but anyway listen that could be a whole other conversation itself. but no i do agree with you like i mean there there in ireland anyway there are so many functioning alcoholics it's not even and you know that as well like i mean that's exactly it yeah. too it's just because again the tolerance that like someone like my father too same as your father like have built up it's just like it's go back 10 points and they're the finest like whereas like i haven't touched alcohol actually since i was 17 so yeah i actually drank before it was even illegal like if i was to drink a point now i'd be fucking hammered like <laughs> yeah i'd be the same uh, yeah yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd be i'd, I'd be I'm six years off i'd be done i yeah. know I, I know we're going to get into sleep disorders um if you have something else there to add now I'll, I'll let you jump in but there there is just one thing i i want to ask if you have any sort of knowledge on i know sorry now if you've no notes prepared for this and it's only top mind awareness of me because i listened to an interview recently with sachin patel on stem talk and i spoke to greg potter about this as well what what is your thoughts if you have any on meal timings and its whole effect on circadian biology because like so recently and again i'll talk now just recently there was these studies that came out saying that you know they they match calories and i hate when they say oh we match calories like like okay i know you you tried your best to match but calories can never be matched but they're saying that people who took in the majority of their caloric intake earlier in the day than later in the night seem to have better uh weight loss outcomes and body composition outcomes versus people who, who backload it in the evenings. And like my sort of thing was like, you know, if calories are equated equal, cause I guess I have a bias on it. Cause I, I currently, I eat a lot of my calories in the back end of the day. Like, and I'm probably this, like the lightest and leanest I've ever been. And I'm like, yeah, because I ca- I know my ca- calories and macros for the day. Like, and what's kind of was bugging me about was like people then get this thing in their head it's like the chinese whispers but where people start going well here it's bad now to eat at night because you get fat and i was like oh, for fuck's sake do we have to go through this whole nutritional principle hierarchy again it comes down to your caloric still there, yeah so you can hear me yeah i can still hear you you there can you hear me now I can still hear you rummaging around. Yeah, you're back there now. Yeah, yeah. All right. Where where did you lose me? You were saying about the timing of meals and the calorie and the matching. I think I caught most of it. And um, uh, what what I would say is, yeah, um, is last season on my podcast, I had 
Professor Sean Bank, uh, Sean, Professor, Professor Siobhan Bankson uh, around shift work, diet, nutrition for performance around this topic. And so I did discuss this with Siobhan. Um, and she's been doing some studies here in Australia around this subject as well, about meal timing. And so she's been finding, I think you're losing it, Robbie, again. No, no, I'm here. I can hear you. Okay, so she's been looking at this. She's been doing this exactly the same thing in uh, shift work staff uh, around nursing. And so what she's been fi finding are preliminary data, and she's linked in with Sachin Panda's work as well. And I just bought that book on the weekend about the circadian code, and it's an area that I'm going to get into look a bit further myself. Um, well, what Siobhan found was that those people who fasted on night shift, so let's say you had... Um, 3,000 calories dispersed across night shift. Yeah. You know, in class, classical meals, right? So someone has breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Then you had another group who snacked frequently throughout the night on apples, nuts, small things like that. And then you had a third group who did not eat anything and just drank water. Who do you think had the best neurocognitive performance on night shift? I'd say the people who fasted. Exactly. They were the people, right? So that's, that, that's the evidence coming out. The reason and rationale behind that, and I would, I, this is just my very quick skimming of, the, of what's going on and what I know of it, would be that we are not meant to be awake at nighttime. We're meant to be asleep. Yeah. Therefore, there is a, a deregulation of leptin and ghrelin hormones, so we're not designed to process food at night. We also know that from shift work studies, if we have two different people, if me and you, Robbie, are 70 kilos and we both are, um, start a new job tomorrow, all things being equal, you work shift work, I don't work shift work. We both consume 3,000 calories a day. Um, the person working shift work would probably gain about five kilos in that year because they just can't basically metabolize that food or that, that, that energy um, because they're awake at nighttime or at odd hours as well. So we know that shift work and timing is detrimental. Now, in your scenario, very individualized. I think there's a few other factors there. Probably highly active. You got your sleep dialed in. You're not taking caffeine in. You're a young man. So kind of eating later is better for you. When I was younger, I was more like that too. Now, in my 40s, I tend to try to have my meal, my main meal before 7 p.m. Okay. But that's because I like to go to bed at half eight, yeah. nine o'clock and read yeah. a book. So that's different for me. But to your point as well, there's, there's around timing of food. There's times when I get up in the morning, I just don't feel hungry, mm. where I go, right, I'm just not going to eat. I'm not going to eat by the clock, like a regimental sergeant measure and go, well, it's half six, it's breakfast time. Yeah. I get up in the morning and I, I won't have anything. I might just say, I'm going to drink water till 10 o'clock or until I feel hungry. Like the other day, I didn't eat till four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. I went and swam. I had a coffee. You know, I drank a ton of water, but I just didn't feel hungry. So therefore, I didn't eat the food. So my, my kind of recommendation to people on this as well is don't eat by the clock, eat by how you feel. Yeah. Um, you know, try to consume. I said this on another podcast the other day. If you're worried about your weight and you're worried about your performance, I think if you can get, if you can sleep seven to nine hours a night, or at least spend that time in bed as a starter, if you can exercise for an hour a day, and I'm not talking about walking to work and walking to the shop, I'm talking about an hour of some type of aerobic exercise, whether it be swimming, running, riding a bike, whatever it is, where you're getting your heart rate up around 120 and above. And if you can consume around 2,000 calories a day, even if you don't give a shit about the quality of food, you'd probably do pretty well with yeah. those kind of three things in mind. Yeah. You know? So 
this whole thing around Sachin Panda and circadian timing and feeding is very interesting. And like I said, I bought the book last weekend. It's on the list now to, to get stuck into. Um, we've been looking at weight cutting and sleep. And we've got a paper about the Gwynfrey review. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to look into this. Uh, myself and another scientist have been playing around with the ketogenic diet, as I said, um, for the for the last few few weeks. Mm. Um, she's a sleep scientist and she's lost like nearly six kilos in 15 days on the ketogenic diet. And she's self-reporting better sleep, mood, cognitive behavior, uh, performance, all these things. And, um, you know, better sort of, you know, just better health in general. So I, I think, yeah, there's, there's still loads doing this area, Robbie. Um, yeah. But it is an interesting area. So, like, a few points on that is completely agree with you that most of us eat completely just out of habit. Like, and we're so, like, not tuned to our actual hunger signals. That's why fasting is, is really good because you're like, wow, I'm actually not hungry. You know, when you, when you fast yeah. properly. Just on, on the time of the meals, I, I would 100% wholeheartedly agree even though i haven't done any major research like that eating like on shift work that would no doubt have some detrimental impact on things like uh body composition and health and whatnot but i suppose where i was getting at was like just like you know kind of like sachin panda like you know eating like past 6 p.m or 7 p.m now initially i remember reading jack cruz's work and his whole thing was like that if you do like big big meals closer to bedtime or closer to midnight that that there does seem to be evidence that screws up things like ghrelin and leptin signals and and stuff like that but it was just i suppose my sort of thing was that people are gonna again do the chinese whispers like oh i hear that if you eat like all these meals at night you get fat and it's like well there's like i mean there's so much more context going around that i mean if you're still within your calories, if you're hitting your macros, your weight and body composition really shouldn't be drastically changed by that. But then that's only if we're talking about weight and body composition. Now, then there's a discussion of, well, health, like what is healthier than in terms of the timing of those meals? Because Sachin Panda did make a good point, I thought, on the uh, his, his discussion on STEM talk. And I've actually noticed this myself, and this is just an N1. Uh, you know, he's like saying that, you know, if you're consuming a big meal closer to, to bedtime, He's like, bedtime is actually where your heal does a lot, your gut does a lot of healing because it's generally fast. He's like, if you're digesting food, you're not actually giving it a full time to heal. And it could potentially lead to more leaky gut. And then you get things like LPS. And I actually have noticed that I'm getting a little bit of swelling. And it's almost like they almost look a little bit arthritic, my hands. Like, I get, they're like, and like my mother keeps saying, oh, it's the cold weather. I'm like, I don't know if it is because, like, I don't know if it, like it's like you know what's the thing people call like chill blades, but I I've noticed that since I started to eat later at night, that like that I that my hands do seem to be a bit stiffer. Like it's almost like an arthritic thing, and I'm I'm just Sasha panicking. I'm wondering like I wonder is that maybe like just a bit of an overactive immune response that's going on? So I'm thinking about toying around because there was a period of time where I was similar to yourself. I was on a schedule where like my last meal was like at seven thirty or something like that, or even seven, and I would because I was in bed like at like. 8.30 whereas I, when I started coaching teams again I wasn't getting home till like 9pm and I wasn't eating later till then like yeah, yeah. It, it was just that now I, I'm still in bed asleep by 10 but it's just it pushed everything back in terms of my meals and all and I just got into the habit of it now and I suppose like because now I kind of look forward to having my meal at night I'm in this position where I'm like fuck it I have to change it around now because people are telling so yeah. like, there, there's a part of me trying to like disprove it to a degree and I, I think in terms of just weight and body composition it wouldn't Make a difference, but I think as a health thing, just in Sasha Panic thing, but like your heels, just giving a chance, giving your, your good a chance to like heal and repair. And I usually do like uh, go at least 12 hours most days without eating and, and, and eat then within 12 hours. Not that I personally do that, but I just think it is still good to obviously give your digestive system a break because I don't think people realize how much 
work actually goes into digesting food like and but no it's interesting and it's an area too that i'm going to look into more in terms of the um your meal timings and its impact on your circadian biology i don't know if you've anything more to add to that i was just gonna say like i think also as well like you don't have to do that every single day it can be a bit like you know and this is again my experience it can be um you know how you feel and what your schedule is so for example when we finish this call in about 20 minutes um I'm going to go to the swim pool and I'm going to swim from about seven o'clock till about half eight and we're going to swim about four kilometers, right? It's a fairly hard session in the pool. It's late at night for me. I'm normally kind of winding down by half eight, nine o'clock at the max. And I'm going to have to come home then and play around with sort of, you know, food and whatever it might be. So what I've done is on a Wednesday night, even I will not fast on a Wednesday. I will eat small and often throughout the day. So one, I have the energy to do that late evening training session. And then number two, when I do finish it, I'm, my, my caloric requirements are not going to be as high as, 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 as is needed for another a, kind of a normal other day where I'm not training at nighttime. Because uh, a lot of my other swims are in the morning. So um, there's quite a variation in training time with my swimming across the week. So what I will do is I'll eat small and often on a Wednesday. So I do come back from training. I don't have a massive calorie deficit trying to make up. And then tomorrow morning when I wake up, I will have a breakfast regardless of how I feel. I will have a breakfast. Um, and that would be, you know, bacon and eggs, um, you know, sort of that low no carb, toast. high fat type, uh, no toast, no. I, I would die, Robbie, I would die. Um, so, you know, that's, that's something I will kind of do around that. And then sort of on a Saturday morning, for example, I, we get in the pool at half five in the morning on Saturday. So Friday evening, I try to eat by six o'clock. So that means then, you know, I can basically get all that kind of stored energy, get that glycogen in there you know, for, for, for the next morning. Um, so I'm not going to bed, being disrupted, you know, because I want to get in bed before nine so I can get, you know, anywhere between seven and eight hours of sleep before I get up at five o'clock to go and hit out, you know, five or six Ks on a, on a Saturday morning. Um, so that, that becomes then, you know, a, probably a 15-hour fasting period uh, where I train as well through that fasting period and I feel fine. So yeah. you don't have to be regimented every day as well. Yeah, yeah. You may have to change it and it ebbs and flows for lifestyle reasons and so on. But I think exactly what you're saying, you know, for people, if, if you're struggling to work out what works best for you, start off with just eating when you're hungry. Like that's a very simple rule. And I found I had great benefits from doing that. And, and I also struggle with my weight as well. I can put on weight very easily and the older I get, the more, and the easier it is. And I have the old excuse, well, I don't drink, so I can have this and I can have that. You know, I need to live. I'm just as guilty as anybody else. So eat when you're hungry and um, don't eat when you're not hungry. You know, that's like, that, that would help a lot. You know, I, I really resonate with that answer you gave there because I'm exactly the same in terms of like coming up with certain strategies and also realizing too, yeah, like you don't need to be locked in to like, well, I, you know, I always eat at these times and it's always three meals a day. Like, as you said, yeah. and some days it's, it could be, you know, some days I might eat small enough because again, like you're, you're, you're using nutrition there strategically for your training there. Like, so I think a key thing for listeners to take away from what your answer there is that like, don't be just locked into this one regiment, one regimented way of doing anything, not even just nutrition, but like anything in your life. And if there's one sort of thing, like that's a good heuristic is that like being more adaptable is better. Like more adaptable yes. organisms are more robust organisms. So like it, it's good to give your body change. Like we know this, I mean, not a variation is good in training. And it's the same when it comes to things like nutrition, not only even like in terms of the composition of the food, but even like playing around with things like timing, meal timings and compositions and sizes of meals. Um, again, I, I think it's just because 
like again when I like when I was younger and and less mature like you know and probably a little less critical thinking you know you you would take maybe what some authoritative figure said a little bit too literally so like kind of like the Jack Cruz thing of where like he was like don't eat like four or five hours before midnight because it for a little screw up left in and I and I remember like I was trying to wolf down big meals like get my calories in and do you know what I mean and then like and then when I started training teams in the evenings and realizing, oh, it's actually, I actually feel okay if I eat like a night. It's not, it's not devastating me here. And then, yeah, yeah. So basically, what I'm trying to say is, yeah, I, I'm not locked in a regimen. I'm like you too. Like, I, I, I look at like what I need to be fueling for now. And I still do it in a way where I, I really, like, I love food. I live to eat. Like, and I do it in a way that I still enjoy my meals. But I'm exactly like you. There could be days where I'll eat three meals. There could be days where I eat five times a day and they're smaller meals. It just depends again on the context of it. Everything just goes back to context. Yeah. Um, yeah. so we don't have much time left for like so, nine minutes sleep disorders yes so fire away there right so let, let's bang into this one so right sleep disorders is it's a general statement right and it pertains to over 80 sleep disorders 80 right? and they're distributed amongst eight categories according to the international classification of sleep disorders right so the American Academy of Sleep Medicine sets the standards around it so there's over 80 of them at the moment and they're growing these are broken out into different groups, such as sleep-related breathing disorders, circadian rhythm disorders, parasomnias, and so on. Now, up to 30% or one in three of the general population can be affected by sleep disorders, right? So you can have a clinical sleep disorder, um, or you could have even like a kind of a transient-type sleep disorder, which would be something like insomnia, where you may have um, you know, poor periods of sleep. But let's look, Robbie, today at the three most popular sleep disorders that most people are going to be affected by. They are obstructive sleep apnea, insomnia, and restless legs or periodic leg movement disorder. Mm. Okay, so they're, they're the three most kind of prevalent ones you're going to find um, in, in the general population. Now, in the general population, sleep disorders are synonymous with being overweight. So most people will say, oh, I'm not overweight, so I don't have a sleep disorder. It's not wrong with my sleep. And most people use the word sleep disorder to describe obstructive sleep apnea. Obstructive sleep apnea is generally related to people with a BMI greater than 30, right? So there's like an 89% correlation rate with, I think, BMI from 31 and above. So there's a, high, a very good chance you will have obstructive sleep apnea if your BMI is extremely high. It is a very crude measure to use, but that data has been replicated many, many times across the Western world. Now, sleep disorders um, will affect your sleep because they're going to reduce the quantity and the quality of your sleep, which then will impact the amount of sleep you get, which then will impact your leptin and ghrelin levels. And talking about diet nutrition a moment ago, it'll also affect your neurocognition um, and physical performance over long term. And to get back to our initial point, you're not going to be having 90-minute cycles nice and clean if you have um, a sleep disorder. So, yeah, it's pretty... Um, it's pretty variable across. So let's look at obstructive sleep apnea, OSA. This is the most prevalent sleep disorder, right? So here in Australia, you got about 9% of Australian adults having this, and this is a repeated or partial, um, I'm sorry, it's repeated events, but it's partial or complete obstruction of the upper airways during sleep. So basically what you're gonna have is people kind of snoring, making noise, grunting, groaning uh, in their sleep. Now obstructive sleep apnea as well, um, not only the short-term negative effects on sleep, like we spoke about, and cognitive performance and physical performance, the long-term issues are, are are evident here as well from numerous research studies. So you got cardiovascular disease, you got hypertension, and it's also independently associated with glucose intolerance and insulin resistance, leading to type two diabetes. 
and elevated blood pressure. Now, Eve Van Cowdrow of University of Chicago in North America, um, who, by the way, I'm hoping to get on the podcast at World Sleep this September in Vancouver. I hope to interview her around this if I can. Um, she's been doing work in her group around this um, relationship. And if you look at the, some of the data that Eve Van Cowdrow puts out, she shows that as um, obesity rises in nations such as Australia or America, and I would dare to say probably in Ireland too, so too does obstructive sleep apnea. So there's definitely a kind of a, a, a kind of a societal link here in terms of looking at these, this big data here as well about what's going on. So you've not only got the short-term risks, but you've also got the, the long-term risks as well. So it's basically a perpetual cycle because, you know, bad sleep will lead to fucking poor uh, decision-making, which leads to shitty nutrition fucking uh, choices, which leads to, you know, fatigue, which leads to not wanting to, you know, stay active, which leads to getting overweight. And then being overweight yeah. seems to be correlated with, you know, this, this uh, sleep disorder. And it's just like, again, a, a perpetual cycle. Vicious cycle. Yeah. So when we look then, Robbie, at like, you know, you see lots of people who, you know, lots of studies are done in people with sleep disorders who go into a clinic, you know, the, lots of the research is in there. When you look at stuff around athletic performance, there is little to none done um, using polysomnography. So polysomnography, PSG, is the gold standard for identifying sleep disorders. You've got four levels of PSG. You've got PSG level one, which is the gold standard in laboratory. Then you've got PSG two, three, and four, which can be done at home. And progressively, as you go down to four, the amount of channels or the amount of data you can, can collect gets less. So we do know that from like in the NFL, um, in a study there, it looked at 137 players, that about 20% of those athletes using a level four device had obstructive sleep apnea. We also saw as well in college football, out of 302 players um, dispersed from eight professional football teams, we found that there was a high um, level here um, reported although not as high as the NFL, it was 8% reported here. We also see as well in um, NFL, um, ice hockey as well that there was um, approximately 13% of these athletes um, or 14 of 107, you know, meeting the criteria for having obstructive sleep apnea as well. So somewhere between 8 and 20% is the kind of rough estimates as we're getting here from some of these slightly inferior methods. They're still good, but they're slightly inferior to the gold standard. We ran a study here a couple of years ago in Western Australia, which was the first study to our knowledge and to our knowledge still that actually did in laboratory, you know, top of the, top of the was, as we say in Australia, gold standard PSG. And we did that with a super rugby team. And so all these guys came into the lab and spent a night over um, in, the, in the bed sort of all wired up. And what we found, Robbie, with these guys is that out of a team of 25 players that we brought through, because some of them were away playing for the Wallabies in the World Cup, we found that 24% of these players had obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah. So that's higher than what we see in the general population and what we see in other studies. And we also found then as well um, that three of these athletes, or 12% of them, had periodic leg movement disorder. And so what periodic leg movement disorder is, that's another sleep disorder that's prevalent as well. You get periodic leg movement disorder and restless legs. Now, people use those interchangeably. Oh, I had restless legs last night. You actually can only have restless legs during the day and periodic leg movement disorder at nighttime. And you can have one without the other. They don't always go hand in hand, but a lot of time they do. Again, when we look at um, you know athletes, in the general population, this is somewhere less than 5% of people that will have... Um, these type of periodic movement disorders at nighttime. 
but when we look into um, uh, the sorry, those figures actually are 3.9% for periodontal boom disorder and 5.5% for restless legs. But when we move into athletes, there's very little known about them as well. And so by just using questionnaire-based data, they've actually found that 13% um, of um, marathon runners scored, scored positive from a questionnaire. And in another study where they looked at elite ice hockey players, um, they found that 4% of them had it. Now, periodic leg movement disorder and restless legs are both linked to um, or have been kind of, can be a result of depletion or lower, low magnesium and low iron as well. So sometimes when we give people magnesium supplementation or to get um, iron tablets or even an iron infusion for some, for some athletes, uh, intravenous iron may be used here to treat these guys and we can see you know, an alleviation of those uh, of those episodes taking place overnight, being periodic leg movement disorder, restless legs. Now, some people might say, well, that's been exacerbated because they're in season or they're playing. What's interesting about our study is that we actually did it in the off season and it was about eight weeks after the season finished. Mm -hmm. So they weren't under a significant amount of stress at the time in terms of load. Um, so therefore, we think that result could be actually higher in the in season than compared to the off season. Um, the final one, Robbie, is insomnia, which is one of the most prevalent ones as well. Now, in general, with insomnia, um, more women are affected by insomnia than men. And you basically have three types of insomnia. You've got sleep onset insomnia, so difficulty falling asleep. Sleep maintenance insomnia, so difficulty staying asleep. And you also then have what's called early morning waking insomnia. So waking up too earlier. Mm -hmm. And they can be um, segregated into other um, you know, subcategories as well called primary and secondary insomnia. But approximately like one third of people or one in three people will experience insomnia sometimes in their life and they will feel sleepy the next day and they might be dissatisfied. That may be due to stress at work, it could be circumstances at home like a family death or something may be going on, uh, it could be studying part-time. We're all going to have bad night's sleep. So transient insomnia, you know, from time to time is, 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 is quite normal. So it's not for people to stress about. Um, a lot of people take a lot of tablets for this or look for medication to solve that after a couple of nights. My advice is don't always jump to the tablets. Um, like we spoke about before with sleep hygiene principles and practices, your, your discussions earlier about you know, light exposure, activity before bed, uh, alcohol, caffeine, all of these things can really help with insomnia. And I think a lot of people may be suffering with insomnia due to alcohol and caffeine use in the evening after dinner as opposed to classic insomnia. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if we look at the athletes then as well, Robbie, we see a lot of variation across the athletes. So, you know, it depends on the, how you assess insomnia. The problem with insomnia is you can, if you have them in the lab overnight, you're just getting one snapshot for insomnia. Now, that's fine for obstructive sleep apnea and period like, like movement disorder, but insomnia may take more or require more longitudinal data assessment using wrist-worn actigraphy, sleep diaries, and working with the, the patient or the subject over time. And so we see like in Italian Olympic athletes, about 4% of these guys reported having um, insomnia. In ice hockey players, it's up around 12%. Um, so it depends on the, on the scoring. It depends on what you're using. There's other, stu other studies that have reported 60 to 80%. So it depends on what you're trying to, uh, trying to assess. Um, and so it's, there's, the data here with insomnia is, is crazy. Uh, it's spread from like low five six percent all up to eighty percent so the studies here are quite variable and there's no consistency in how we actually 
measure or determine insomnia in athletes. What we did find in our study using longitudinal data and using overnight polysomnography in the lab and questionnaires that actually nobody flagged up with having clinical insomnia. A lot of players reported what we call sub-threshold insomnia and even excessive daytime sleepiness, but they actually um, you know, it didn't flag up um, as having clinical insomnia. And so some people may be reporting insomnia, over-reporting insomnia because of, you know, might wake up for a few minutes, but they might actually think it was longer. But also people might be over-reporting insomnia due to just general fatigue from life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's a very quick overview, Robbie, of those three, um, those three major sleep disorders. But the main thing to remember is that there is over 80. Uh, sleep disorder does not discriminate. It's not always linked to weight. Uh, you can be a skinny guy and have a sleep disorder. Um, you know, like my BMI is well within range and I have mild obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, other people that may be, you know, at risk is people who have Asian backgrounds or African-American due to the shape of the mandible or the jawbone because they are maybe impacting the ability to get air into the, uh, into the respiratory system overnight due to, due to just basic, you know, physiology and how you're structured. So, um, yeah. Yeah, sleep disorders is a is a difficult one, and if you're having lots of trouble with sleep over time, you may want to look at the um, potential prevalence of having a sleep disorder. I've got loads of other questions, but I know we're finished now for today. Um, just w- one thing, I'll leave you with this and leave you thinking about it too. That's all savage, by the way, with the sleep disorders, and I actually have some some more things that I'd like to ask you about that. Just regarding diet composition again. Um, one thing I've, I've been thinking about is uh, the effect of different diet compositions on sleep. So like say a high fat diet versus a high carb diet versus fasting pre-sleep. Is that something you've thought about? Yeah, it's definitely something I've thought about. It's something I've looked, I've, I haven't looked at and I haven't had time to look at it, but something I want to get into a bit more. Mm-hmm. I would suggest that Siobhan Banks and Sachin Panda be people that be more, um, you know, they'd be the ones that be doing more of that research. Yeah, I'm just yeah. interested in getting to it with my own knowledge. Um, but, um, I think you struck a chord with me there. I was going to say something as I was answering that. And I forgot. Um, I think I think there's definitely got it is going to have a, an effect. Um, but but just, again, it comes out. The, the, the reason I ask you is because I I seen a difference. I I seen like if I go to bed faster, I don't seem to have any dream recall. Whereas if I go to bed when I eat a higher fat meal, I have dreams, but they seem to be very like boring dreams. And then if I have like a lot of carbs before I go to bed, I have the wackiest fucking dreams. And I've seen this just consistently just with me though. So that's why I ask. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting one. It's something I'll, I'll probably take a look at. But I'll tell you what is, is, is interesting. There was another study done just before ours was released in rugby league players in Australia talking about body fat and body composition, not the effect on dreams like in your example. Yeah. But what is interesting is we didn't find a link between BMI, body mass index, and obstructive sleep apnea in elite athletes. We didn't find that link. Now, that was an 89% correlation rate in the general population. But what the rugby league study found, doing level 2 PSG at home, they looked at body fat composition using a DEXA scanner, and they actually found a link between body fat and obstructive sleep apnea in their players. Mm. So that's, that's an interesting one. So it might necessarily be BMI for athletes or highly trained individuals, it could be the percentage of body fat, and even more so, they went down and discussed distribution of body fat. Very interesting. So that could that could be that could be an issue as well. So, in in terms of the prevalence of sleep disorders, what you're talking about, Robbie, is more about probably impact on nightly sleep. I yeah. don't know if it would be classified as a sleep disorder as such. It might be um, 
you know, kind of an agitator, but um oh, I, I wouldn't yeah, sorry, I, 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 I wasn't I, I wasn't saying that that would be a, a, a like that I wouldn't I wasn't suggesting that dye composition would would lead to a sleep disorder. I'm just saying like it's actually a, it's a question purely removed from sleep disorders. I was just asking on dye composition on the effect of the different type different types of sleep, you know, REM versus non-REM versus, you know, and the depths of sleep and the endurance of sleep. Again, it's probably going to be down to an individual too, you know. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I've never heard anything on it, but um I'll keep my eye out for it because I do want to talk to Siobhan again this year about about yeah. this sort of work. Um so yeah. All right, quickly give us a plug there. So the website and where people can contact you. Oh Robbie, you want to see the website? No man. It's a dream. It's all been changed. Jump on, have a look. Ladies and gentlemen, you have lots of free stuff up there. It is www. Do you have to still have to tell people that you have to put it in the World Wide Web beforehand? Hello, well, yeah. here we go. www.sleepforperformance.com.au. The There's a number four in between the performance. The website's had a great overhaul. Please go and have a look at it, guys. Yeah. Um, all eight of you. Um, the websites are up there. On the website, you have the podcast. All three seasons are there now. You can go by seasons. Uh, blogs and media are there. If you want to look at some of my old media appearances on TEDx Talks or on TV, you want some one or two-minute snippets there, they're there. There's some free downloads. We also have sleep ambassadors as well who are going to be joining the team to help promote the message. A couple of Irish guys on there. I don't know if you know Karen O'Regan, who works with Danny Lennon. I know Kieran extremely well. Uh, myself, yeah. and, myself and Kieran know each other very, very well. So Kieran, Kieran was on my podcast. Uh, he's, he's going to have an episode coming out soon with Kieran. Uh, the episode's going to be titled The King of Cork um, even though he's from Limerick but we'll put him up there uh, we've got Peter Fowler we've got a few other people there as well and we've got other people coming on board as well Brilliant. so they're going to help like uh, produce some content write blogs do podcast episodes do all that so jump over there Sleep for Performance uh, heaps of stuff there consulting services so Sleep for Performance Robbie is 100% free you can rip off and duplicate people as much stuff out there as you like you can <laughs> share that as much as you like that is 100% free but if you want to do work with me, you can contact me at Melius Consulting. You can contact me through Steve for Performance, but um, Melius Consulting is um, a health, safety, and improvement consultancy business. Mm-hmm. We're a niche consultancy organization. We've got people in the US uh, and Australia. and Basically, we help your organization around areas of human performance, human factors, and safety. Uh, and we work at the strategy and system level. All of our people are 15 years experience or more. Everybody is postgraduate degree qualified and 80% of our associates have PhDs as well. So we're a true kind of brains trust that come in uh, or look at a problem, engage with you for a short term and give you high value and walk out the door. So we're not going to be sitting there with our feet under the desk looking for a job. We get in, we get it done and we get out uh, a highly mobile team. So that's Melius Consulting, M-E-L-I-U-S. Melius meaning Latin in Latin to improve, to make better in good style. So everything on Sleep for Performance is free, Robbie. You want to come over here and work with the best and media's consulting, we will charge you a few dimes for that one. Uh, no problem. It's great. I'll be all linked up in the show notes. So for everyone listening, you're spoiled rotten, as I've been saying lately in these episodes. Brilliant uh, discussion with Ian and jam-packed full of information. I'm definitely going to get him back on again. If you'll come on, you bollocks, you better come back on. <laughs> all right, listen. Next time, next, time, next time I'll be charging you a stipend. all right i'll wrap this up here so guys thanks for listening and as i say at the end of every show take care be well and stay strong